And as our children are being dismissed, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 18. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 1069. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John. If you're here with us for the first time, welcome. Uh, we've been studying John, well, for a while now. And uh, here we are in chapter 15. In verses, uh, chapters uh, 13 to 17 is uh, a special segment of John where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his, his departure. He's about to go to the cross and, and rise again and then go back to heaven. So he's getting his disciples ready for that. And today we're going to look at verses 18 uh, through the first part of chapter 16. You know, every yes includes a no. Every yay has a nay embedded within it. When you say yes to something, whether you realize it or not, you're saying no to something else. So, so when a groom uh, looks into the eyes of his bride and stands up in front of the whole church and says, I do, he is also saying, I don't and I won't to every other woman in the room. When uh, you say yes to a history major, you know, you're also really saying no to going pre-med unless you want to spend an extra five years at college after you get through college. And when you say yes to Jesus, you are saying no to the world. And the world doesn't like being told no. Look at verse 18 of chapter 15. Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them... They would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because... They have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. You know, what a jarring uh, translation, uh, transition verse 18 is. Because, you know, up to this point in the Gospel of John, uh, in, in this section we've been reading from chapter 13 till now, as Jesus is in that Last Supper scene with his disciples. You, you know, up to this point, the theme chapter after chapter has been love, right? 
In, in chapter uh, 13, he washes the disciples' feet, and it says that he showed them the full extent of his love. In chapter 14, he gives them a new commandment, love one another. Chapter 15, I mean, just look at the passage we studied last Sunday. Go back to verse 9 of chapter 15. Notice how much love dominates this passage. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. I mean, it's just love everywhere. It's the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father and the Son love the disciples. If the disciples love the Father, they'll obey his commands. And the command they're supposed to obey is to love one another. So, so you get this picture of the life of the disciples of love between the members of the Trinity that spills over into the disciples who reflect it back to the Father by loving one another. You know, it's this whole system of love and, and uh, affection between all these people. So then when you get to verse 18, it's so jarring, isn't it? Isn't it? When it suddenly brings in the word hate. It, it, there's kind of like a thematic whiplash that takes place. And all of a sudden we're talking about hate. And it's like, well, how did we get there? Because as Jesus gets his disciples ready for his departure, he's not only teaching them about the love they're supposed to have for each other, but he's also preparing them for the reality of hatred from the world. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So I want to do two things with you this morning from this text. The first thing I want to do is just try to get our heads around this idea that Jesus rolls out, that that because the world hated him, if we're his disciples, it will hate us too. What, what does that mean? Why is that the case? How, how does that work? And, and that's really what verses 18 down to 25 are all about. And then the second thing I want to do is once we've kind of wrestled with that, I then want to ask the question, okay, what do we do as a response? What does that mean for us as Christians? If that's true and if we experience that to some degree, how do we react What's our response to that circumstance? And that's what verses 26 all the way down to chapter 16, verse 4 are. So let's look at those two things. So here's the first one. This, this idea that because we belong to Jesus and the world hated Jesus, it will hate us as well. Jesus has been in the world. He's been doing his ministry. He's experienced resistance and persecution. He's about to leave. And he's telling his disciples, guess what? Now the focus will be on you. Okay, he says in verse 18, if the world hates you, which it will, keep in mind that it hated me first. Why is that? Well, verse 19, it's because we've changed loyalties and allegiances. Verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So if you're a Christian, you no longer belong in the world. Now, by world, we don't mean the physical world of planet Earth, because obviously we're still here. We haven't been beamed up yet. Uh, and, and, and by the world, we're not talking about the total population of planet Earth, because we still belong to that. John uses the word world in a very kind of specific theological way to describe um, the human race in its rejection of God. The human race saying no to God, no to God's rules, 
no to God's plan. The human race saying, we'll do it our way. The human race's love of sin. You know, that's the world. It's, it's our posture of rejection against God. And so in that sense, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't belong to the world. Because instead of saying no to Jesus, we're saying yes to Jesus. We do believe he's the son of God. We do believe he has risen from the dead. We are trying to love and honor him and obey him. So, so we don't belong in, in that system. And so Jesus is saying, guys, just accept the fact the world's going to hate you because of that. Because it's going to look like you've, you've traded loyalties. Like, like when Johnny Damon was drafted by, you know, the Yankees. And everyone says, he betrayed us, you know. That's pretty much all the Red Sox lore I know. So anyway, um, yeah, I'm proud that I said that, though. So, that, you know, it's like that. It's like, hey, where'd you go? Our family hasn't changed. You're the one who became the Christian. Where did you go? You know, we're still the same people, and suddenly you won't party with us, or you won't hang with us. You're the one who left us. What happened to you? You know, you're not the person I married. The person I married wasn't a Jesus freak. And now you are a Jesus freak. I feel like you're cheating on me with the church. Like, what are you doing? I haven't gone anywhere, but you've gone somewhere. And so be prepared. We no longer belong to the world in its attitude toward Christ We've come into a new relationship with Christ. It's also the fact that, you know, if Jesus was harassed and persecuted, we should expect it too. That's what he says in verse 20. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. He said that back in chapter 13. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so if I'm the master and I got static, then Don't think you're beyond it or above it as my disciples. It's just part of being a disciple. Jesus taught. He did miracles. And and he got all kinds of pushback. Some people, it was real mild. It was like, well, I just don't believe that, Jesus. Some people uh, walked away. Some people questioned him. Some people argued with him. Some people talked behind his back and plotted against him. Some people arrested him. Some tortured him. And some killed him. So so there was a whole spectrum of, of persecution and resistance that Jesus experienced. And we need to be prepared as disciples of Jesus to experience anything along that spectrum of rejection. Because if it happened to him and we're the guys going around saying, yeah, we follow him and we're proclaiming the same things as he did, we should expect that from the world as well, some degree or another. It's, it's, so this is the idea that he wants to give us. The world hated Christ. The world will hate us too to the extent that we stand with Jesus and proclaim his name. But I want to ask a question, and I said this first service. I feel a little nervous asking this question, but to be honest, I had to ask this question because, I don't know, I just reading this text, and my mind was wrestling with it. And uh, it, maybe the question sounds a little bit sacrilegious at first, but I, but I hope you'll just kind of bear with me as I, as I welcome you into my mental process, which is a scary place to be. But um, so here's my question. Is what Jesus said really true? Does the world really hate disciples of Jesus? Does the world really hate evangelical Christians? Is that really true? You know, I mean, maybe, just follow me here a little bit. Don't you have people in your life who know you are a disciple of Jesus? You've told them that. They are not disciples of Jesus. They've told you that. And they're nice to you. They like you. They say, well, that's for you. It's not for me. That's cool. And, uh, and, and they, they don't harass you. They don't, 
you, you know, uh, pull pranks on you because you're a Christian. They don't try to work against you because you're a Christian. They don't, they're not mean to you. In fact, uh, maybe you have some people in your life who would not claim to be disciples of Jesus, but they have been there for you in some very tough times. They've been there to support you and been very kind to you. And so it's like, they didn't hate me. They were, they're actually really nice to me. Uh, if you'll go with me a little further, let's, let's even take it another step. Maybe you're here this morning and you would not self-identify as a disciple of Jesus. You're like, yes, you know, I'm here. Someone invited me, whatever reason you're here, but you're not there. You're, you're not sure if he's the son of God. You don't necessarily believe he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. You haven't claimed him as your savior. And, and, and you're, you're hearing this, you're reading, you know, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And you're like, I don't hate disciples of Jesus. Hey, I'm in the church right now. Obviously, if I hated you, I wouldn't be here sitting in this church service. In fact, have you seen my car out there? I got a bumper sticker on my car. It says coexist, you know? And every letter of coexist is made from a symbol of a different world religion. It's actually rather clever, thank you. And, uh, it, 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 and you know, I, I drive around preaching to everyone on my bumper sticker, hey, all you religious nuts, get along. In fact, I would argue that the real problem is, is religion. Religion is what causes people to fight. You know, it's, we have too much religion in the world. Religion gives people this idea that, that God has authorized them to be a jerk to everybody else. And so I think, you know, the problem is religion. I'm the one here who's feeling persecuted and hated. Thank you very much as a skeptic. And so, you know, maybe I shouldn't have asked that question. I don't know. I just, I wrestle with it. What, what does that mean? Does the world really hate us? Is that really true? I suppose we really need to define the word hate, don't we? In the sense that the Bible uses it and Christ was using it. Just like we had to define the word world, it's always important to define words, especially biblical words, because, you know, sometimes there can be something lost in translation. Words have a certain meaning in a historical context, they're translated into English, then we read the English word, but we import all of our English connotations. So we need to know what Jesus was talking about. And I think that the problem is that when we hear the word hate, we primarily think about it in, in terms of an emotion, in terms of a violent anger against something. So, so when you say, think of hate, you know, I, I, I envision a, a person at a protest, and in one so- hand he's got a sign with some really offensive protest language on it. The other hand is a fist, and he's shaking it, and his, you know, his mouth is, is curled back in a rictus, and it's you know, showing his teeth. Rah! And you see that guy and go, whoo, that guy's got some hate issues. He's really mad. Or you see someone burning a flag or burning somebody in effigy and jumping up and down, chanting, and you go, wow, there's a lot of hate there. So, so we think of hate primarily in emotional terms. And so then you read the world hates us, and you're like, well, I don't know. I haven't really seen people get screaming in my face and wanting to hurt me and have emotion like that. Um, but, but we've got to remember, hate is not primarily an emotion as defined here. Hate has more to do with, with a relational posture towards somebody else. It's a relational posture of saying, I don't accept it. I don't agree. I don't believe. And when that posture is toward God... <laughs> It's a kind of hate, whether you have emotions or not. It's kind of like, it's kind of like love, except the opposite. 
I mean, how many times have you heard a pastor preach? You've heard this sermon. I've heard this sermon. Love is not an emotion. Have you heard pastors say that? Love is a commitment. Pastors say that all the time. And, and if you love someone, it means you're committed to them. And the emotions come and go, don't they? And so you've been, you know, a couple's been married for 30 years. And they may have emotions and feelings. But it's not like if you've been married 30 years, just every day you're floating around in this emotional romantic cloud. You know, just always in love, and the butterflies are always flying around the house, and the, you know, the, the snowflakes are always falling. It's just dreamy. It's not like that. There are moments like that. There's other times, well, you want to strangle them, actually. But you love each other. The emotions can vary, but you love each other. You're committed. Your general posture is, I accept you. I embrace you. So hate is a posture, biblically defined here, of saying, I reject I do not accept. And it can come out in a variety of emotions, anywhere from common difference to anger and rage and violence and anything along that spectrum. And so what Jesus is saying is, because you have not believed, because they have not believed and accepted that I really am the light of the world, the Son of God, the resurrection and the life, the one through whom salvation has come, they have taken a posture of rejection toward God toward me and toward my father. You know, look down at verse um, 20. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant's greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. So, you know, if you hear Jesus' teaching and you say, yes, I submit to and agree to that, that's a posture of love toward Christ. Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commands? So to say, no, I will not keep your commands is a posture of, of hate as defined, uh, is, is the way we see Jesus using it here. Verse 21, they'll treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If, they, if I had not come and spoken to them, they'd not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse. I, I, I told them the truth. They didn't believe me. Now they're, they're guilty of hating the truth. He who hates me, verse 23, hates my father as well. So it's also a posture of hatred toward God who sent Jesus. Because Jesus represents God. Jesus is God in human flesh. And so it's an attitude toward God of rejection. And when you reject God, it's, it's a kind of hatred. Verse 24, if I had not done among them what I, no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen these miracles, and yet they've hated both me and my Father. I did miracles. And some people saw the miracles and they wanted to kill me. Some people saw the miracles and said, eh, I don't, I don't know, I'm busy. Either way, it's hate because it's unbelief and rejection. L- let me try this. L- let me try an analogy. So, so here's just to kind of bring all these little threads together. L- let me just try this analogy out and see if it works. Imagine a, uh, a kid in his room, maybe a teenager, maybe a kid, and the kid's room is a disaster. It's a mess. It's a pigsty. Everything's on the floor. Uh, maybe this isn't so hard to imagine. Um, so it's, it's a total, like, you know, hurricane went through there. There's, you know, cereal bowls with milk that's now curdled, and it's just nasty, and there's stuff, you know, wet towels on the floor that are molding. And, and the mother comes in, and she's had it. She's like, that's it. This room will now be cleaned. You, th- that's it. Clean this room. I cannot take it anymore. And, and imagine the, the kid sitting there. Imagine a boy sitting there, and he, he's got his own PlayStation 3 in the room, and he's just playing. And imagine he doesn't look at his mom. He doesn't even make eye contact. His back is to her. And he starts to talk. He's not angry. He's not upset. He's very matter-of-fact and calm. 
He says, actually, mother, I've come to some conclusions. <laughs> I've concluded this is actually my room, not yours. And because it's my room, I define the terms of this room. I define this room as clean. And actually, what you think is clean, I define as dirty. Because you've sprayed all your chemicals around the house. Um, so, so this room is clean. I, I'm defining clean and dirty for myself. And, uh, and, and that's what I'm going to do. I can do what I want here. This is my room, not yours. If I want to let girls in that window at midnight, and if they want to bring beer and pot, well, that's my life. It's my room. And, uh, and actually, you know, I've, I've come to some theories. I have this theory that you actually didn't give birth to me. I, I, I've come to this theory that I sort of evolved out of the primordial mess on my floor here. So through, through random mechanisms that I really, you know, can't really explain, but they, they, it happened, and I, here I am. Actually, I don't know if I believe in the existence of mom. Um, I, I, I kind of think you might be a projection of, of just sort of an innate evolutionary need I have for a higher power, but, and, and really, mom is for people who need a crutch in life, and I don't need a crutch. I've come to a place of, of self-reliance, and I don't need you anymore, so I, I kind of feel like I'm just talking to a phantom, and and so that's why I'm not even looking at you, because you're not even really real to me. In fact, I believe, I believe mom is within all of us. You're mom, and I'm mom, and we just need to find the mom within. And listen, you know. And the mother is just like, closes the door. She gets on the phone with her friend. And, and you know, would the mother be justified in saying, would the mother be justified in saying to her friend, I think my son hates me. The son didn't raise his voice. The son didn't punch. The son wasn't violent. He was rather indifferent, actually. But it's like, he hates me. <laughs> you know? Think about that. And that's how we are toward God. He made us. He owns us. He gave us everything. And we say, you don't exist. I don't know. I think I used to be a plankton. Whatever. You know? And I can do what I want. And I can live however I want. And you know, it's it's crazy. And then, and then we think that, well, I don't hate God. I just don't believe he's real. It's like, man, that, that's, that's not unbelief. That's treason against the king. It's treason. And you know what happens to traitors. So, so it's this crazy posture. And all Jesus is saying is, hey, the world hated me. The world hated my father. And if you're going to stand up for me and be my person, it's, it's going to hate you too. So be prepared for that. So just to go back into our analogy, so who we are as Christians then, we're like the, we're like the sibling who's in the bedroom next to the messy bedroom, right? And, you know, mom goes away, and, and the, the mad sibling who doesn't believe in mom anymore is just angry. He comes out. He's like, and we come over to our bedroom. We're like, what's wrong? I heard the shouting. Like, ah, oh, mom told me to clean up the room again. And, 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 and we're like, oh, you should clean up your room. It's awesome. I love mom. And, and the more I've learned to, to obey mom, the happier I am. I used to think cleaning my room was stupid, but since I've done it, it's, just, it's been so great to do what mom says. You should obey mom too. <laughs> like, what, how's that other person going to feel? They're just going to be like, forget it. Or, or maybe, they'll, you know, maybe then they will be like, you, you know, siblings fight and all that. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we're the people out in the world saying, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Savior. 
There is an escape from the judgment of God, which is real. It's through Jesus who was crucified and buried and rose again. You need Christ, and following him is, is the answer. Like, don't be surprised that when we say that clearly, if people are like, or worse, it, it could even be worse. But that's all Christ is saying. And can I just, before we go on to the next major movement here, can I just do one little aside? And I, I just want to say that if you're in the messy room this morning, you know, there's still time to run to Jesus. Just leave the room, stop the nonsense, turn off the PlayStation, and run to Christ and seek him. He is ready to forgive people who turn to him. Just like if that, if that kid in that story ran to his parent and just fell on his knees and said, I have been a complete moron and a You know, I've sinned against you, mom and dad. God will forgive. Christ died for dirty room people. You know, the message of the gospel isn't clean your room. It's it's God forgives sinners. Christ cleaned us on the cross. So you could still come to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you think you're here for this reason or that. But maybe the reason you're here this morning is because just like Jesus said, he chose us out of the world. Maybe his hand is at work in your life. I just want to say, stop running from him and run to him and repent and believe. Okay, we need to move on. I've got I to finish this thing. So let's look at the second half of this sermon, verses, uh, this text. Verses 26 to chapter 16, verse 4. So the first half is understanding this, this dynamic that the world hated Christ and it will hate us too because we, bon- we belong to Christ. So then the next question is, uh, therefore, what do we do in response? What should our reaction be? What, what is our, our posture as Christians and our reaction to this state of affairs? It's a difficult situation to be in. So what do we do? Do we form a militia and fight back? Do we form a political party to fight for our political rights as Christians? We form the Christian party. Um, maybe, maybe we just leave the country altogether and we say, let's just go form a little Christian country somewhere. You know, like a, big, a really big commune. We'll make our own laws and rules. and Like the Puritans did. A city on a hill, we'll just go. Except, you know, the Puritans came to Boston. You know, maybe we should go to, like, you know, the Caribbean. <laughs> you know, sell the building here, buy an island, and go on the beach. Um, and I could be the pastor there. That would be awesome. So, uh, I mean, that's what we do. Maybe, maybe we just got to get out of here. Get out of here and, and stop interacting with the world. You know, what, what do we do in response? Well, I... I suppose that's a, a lot of things we could say on that topic. But let me just point out two here in the text. The first is this. No matter what the world does or what static we get, we have to keep speaking the truth and the gospel boldly. We have to keep testifying boldly. We can't back down, water it down, tone it down. See that in verses 26 and 27. When the counselor comes... And the Father will send the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. So the Holy Spirit's, one of his main jobs is to testify about Jesus. He speaks to our hearts. That's how we come to believe in Christ, as the Spirit testifies to our souls. And then verse 27, you also must testify. So we speak to the ears. Our job is to speak to people's ears and pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to their hearts. And so we join the Holy Spirit and become the conduits through his testimony as we share the gospel with people. So we need to do that. And, and that's important because if you're getting static, if you're getting pushback, if you're getting resistance, 
The temptation is to water it down and tone it down, right? You got a friend. Eventually, you know, maybe acquaintance becoming a friendship, and at some point, somehow the topic of spirituality or religion comes up, and you share your views about Christ and the fact that he's the Savior, and that friend either goes like, oh, I don't know about that, or, or maybe, you know how there's like friendships where there's suddenly this weirdness that descends on a friendship, and then people kind of start drifting away, and you're like, I don't know what's wrong, there's weirdness, people are drifting away. And then, okay, so you lose that friend. And then maybe sometime later you make another friend. And then the topic of religion and spirituality comes up. And, and you know, your first thought is, eh, I don't know if I should do that again. Because yeah, I did that once, and I lost a friend, so I'm going to hmm, spin it, PR it, do something to kind of soft pedal it. And we need to, no matter what happens, keep boldly proclaiming Christ. Here's a great case study in how to respond to persecution. Uh, put a bookmark here in John and turn over to the next book of the Bible, Acts. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. It's the next book of the Bible. Jesus has gone to heaven. Disciples are now preaching the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, two of the apostles, Peter and John, heal a man who is unable to walk. They're hauled before the religious authorities. They ask him, in whose name did you heal this man? And look what they say down in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit coming in, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Very bold. Already the gospel is being worked in there. Christ crucified, Christ raised. And then verse 12, look at that. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name. Wow, that's strong. As you can imagine, that doesn't go over well. So verse 18, they called them in again, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They said, can't do that. Verse 19, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. So now what are the disciples supposed to do? They, God did a miracle. They preached the gospel. They've been told not to preach in the name of Jesus. They've been commanded by authorities not to preach in the name of Jesus. They've been threatened. What do you do? And the temptation is, back off a little. Let it cool down. You know, reposition. Take this from a different angle. No, 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 no. They pray for boldness. They get together. They have a prayer meeting. And what do they pray? Verse 29. Jump down. Now, Lord, this is their prayer. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Lord, you heard the threats. We heard the threats. And what we want is more guts to be very clear about the gospel. We want to do it more. Or... Uh, you know, verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. This, this whole thing got started because 
We healed some guy in the name of Jesus. We want more of that. Give us more healing so we can have more opportunities to speak in the name of Jesus. I mean, they, they're doubling down, aren't they, on the boldness and the witness. And then verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and, what, spoke the word of God boldly. So what we need to do in the face of harassment and resistance is to be bold in the preaching of the gospel. As Max Stiles said in our missions conference a couple months ago, we need to take more risks. We need to be willing to just say it plainly. Could it be that one of the reasons we don't experience hatred from the world is because we kind of soft-pedal our testimony? Maybe that's why we think, oh, the world doesn't hate us. Maybe it's because we're too camouflaged and we don't speak the message plainly. Not that we're jerks or self-righteous or snooty religious people, but you just have to, you have to put it out there plainly. You know, you, you say to someone, hey, do you want to come to church with me one Sunday? And that's good. Invite people to church, definitely. I do it too, and that's a good thing to do. But, you know, it's, it, it's not quite testifying, is it? You know, if I say to someone, come to church, and they're like, they might say yes, or they might say, well, I'll think about it, or maybe they'll say, it's not really my thing, but it means a lot that you ask me. But that's about it. But, but if, if I'm talking to somebody, and, and we get into this topic about religion or spirituality or whatever, and, and they say, well, you know, I'm not really that religious. I'm more spiritual. And we were to say to them, you know, the problem with spirituality is it can't save you from hell. You know, that's a problem with spirituality. It might make you feel better. It might improve some aspects of your life, but it You know, you and I are sinners under the judgment of God, and there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, which is Jesus Christ. Because he died for our sins and he rose again. And so you and I need the same thing. We need Jesus. And without Jesus, you are lost, just like I am. You know, I wonder if we said that, if there might be a different reaction. Maybe there might be more like, whoa. You could just just see the, the, you know, coexist bumper stickers, like just falling off cars. Like, suddenly I'm not comfortable with that. That's, that's a bold testimony. And again, you don't have to be angry. You don't have to be preachy. We're not better than other people as Christians. We're just, as has often been said, one beggar telling another beggar where the bread of life is. Saying, that's it. You need it too. I need it. We need Christ. And so when we do that, you know, that's going to bring resistance. We just need to be more clear with the gospel. We need to be bold. Um, we need not be afraid. And, and can I just say, too, just another little tangent here, that, that that really is the weapon we have as Christians for the kingdom of God. You know, there, there is a militancy to the Christian religion, but it's just this, speaking boldly. You know, we, we, only, have, we only have three weapons in the gospel. Here they are. Speaking boldly, praying fervently, and loving and serving humbly. That's it. Anything we do beyond that in the name of Jesus is not for Jesus. Because there have been people down through the centuries who have, in the name of Jesus, done violence to other people. And you just have to understand, those people were acting contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing we can do is speak boldly, pray fervently, and love humbly. And after that, just take whatever comes, even if that means suffering and death. But we have to be bold, and we have to speak boldly. So there really is no place for Christian militarism in the sense of violence or coercion against others. So that's the first thing we have to do. And then just to wrap this up, the, the first thing we need to do in response 
to the reality of hatred is we need to speak the truth boldly, not back down, be clear. And the second thing we need to do is just stay the course and not freak out when resistance does come. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. All this I have told you, so that, here's what you're supposed to do, you will not go astray. Don't go astray. Don't freak out. Don't panic. God hasn't left you. You should expect this as Christians, that if we're boldly and clearly proclaiming the gospel, that these things will happen along that whole spectrum of, of resistances that, that can take place. These things will happen. Just be ready for that. The Greek word there is, uh, when it says don't go astray, the Greek word is, is a great Greek word, scandalizo. It's from which we get our word scandalize. You know, don't be scandalizoed by this. Don't be thrown off. Don't apostatize. Don't go away. Don't let it trip you up. Because it's going to happen. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue, Jesus predicted. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. The apostle Paul, before he was Paul, was a guy named Saul. He changed his name. And when he was Saul, he was persecuting Christians. He was killing them. And he thought he was offering a service to God. You know, so it's going to happen. Just know it. And when it happens, don't freak out. I, I've, I don't know if you've been hearing about this in the news, but in uh, north, northern, northeastern Nigeria, uh, there is a, a, a Muslim militant group called Boko Haram. And Boko Haram, they, they estimate uh, in 2012, killed almost somewhere around 800 Christians. They've just been targeting Christians. They've been going into church services and detonating bombs or shooting people. Christmas Eve, uh, 12, 12 Christians were killed in a Christmas Eve service. Uh, pastors and, and the people were gunned down as people came in and, and killed them. I mean, I can't even imagine that. Could you imagine that? Like, like wow. <laughs> That'd be easy to be scandalized and say, I don't know about this whole church Jesus thing. Maybe I should rethink this because I, I, I didn't sign up for this, did I? Well, if you're following Jesus, remember where he went. We have to be ready to follow him there. You know, and heck, we, we get scandalized when there's like three inches of snow on the ground. I don't think I can make it to church. But could you imagine? <laughs> Patriots are playing at noon. Ah, too much to do. Can't go. But c- c- could you imagine if, if, you know, I go to church today and I could be gunned down? Because, or I could be blown up because I'm going to church. Like, wow, that is so far out of the American experience. And it's, you know, but... Don't be, don't be thrown. Don't be thrown. And they think they're offering a service to God. They, they think they're serving Allah and jihad and doing the right thing. And this, this happens. Raises a question, is there such a thing as persecution in America? Do we know religious persecution in America? Kind of an interesting question. One for you guys to talk about at lunch. Um, two ways you could answer that probably. One is, not really. <laughs> you compare what we go through as Christians in America to what Christians are going through in Iran or in Saudi Arabia or North Korea or Nigeria or Iraq where Christians have had to flee into, you know, up into the north uh, just to, to get away from the persecution there in Iraq and in Baghdad. You know, just in that sense, like compared to that, like people, we got it easy. <laughs> you know, we have religious freedom in our country. What a precious gift. We need to protect religious freedom. 
We need to stand up as Christians and fight for religious freedom for Christians. We need to stand and fight for religious freedom for Muslims. We need to fight for religious freedom for Wiccans. We need to fight for religious freedom for skeptics. Because, you know, we're all in it together. And once that goes, no one's safe, and we need to do that. I, I'm all for religious battles. I just want them to be a battle of ideas. Let's have a great battle of ideas. Let's talk and debate and discuss. I just don't want to be in a place where I have to have a battle of weapons. Because, you know, Jesus says, I can't take up any, so I lose. You know, so thank God for our religious freedoms. And and let's protect those. And that's something we enjoy in this country by God's grace. So one sense you could say, no, we're not really persecuted. But in another sense, you know, the world is still the world. And there's still static and resistance. And it may not be in the kind of violence we see in some expressions around the world. And it may not be a state-sponsored kind of uh, uh, reaction to Christianity like some places in the world like brothers and sisters who uh, lived through the Cold War in the Eastern Bloc countries and were tortured and arrested. And so it may not be like that from the government, but, but still, it's here. The world is everywhere. So no matter what country you're in as a Christian, there will always be some static and resistance. And I think we see it in America to a degree. Um, I, I think you know, one of the ways we've seen it in America is just kind of the cultural shift over the f- last 50 years from a, more, from a culture that was more influenced by a kind of Judeo-Christian ethic and morality to one that has lost sight of that. So, you know, there were things 50 years ago that were right. Everyone kind of knew it. And today, some of those things are wrong. And everyone kind of knows it. There were things 50 years ago that were wrong that today people say are right. And, and so we're as Christians. We're living in that culture with that shift. And as that happens, you know, we, 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 feel, we feel a little more out of place. We feel that this culture isn't the same culture maybe you were born in, some of you were raised in. So, and, and it's probably frustrating for some of you who've, who've given much. You know, as, you know you, you went, you've gone through wars, you've sacrificed, and the country has shifted in some ways. And so it reminds us that our home is not here, it's there. And so whether the country is more harmonious with our views as Christians or whether it's less, we're called to testify boldly, pray fervently, Love and hold on to the gospel, regardless of what the cultural context is. And in, the, in that shift, I think what will happen is we'll begin to experience more instances of feeling out of sorts with the cultural vibe around us. So you're a high school student, junior high student, and you don't party. You don't sleep around. You don't swear and you don't, you know, get into the gossip circles and all the nastiness the kids can do with each other. And, and, you're, and you don't do those things because you love Jesus and you're trying to follow him and be a light for him. What's going to happen to you? Are you going to get stuffed, in, stuffed into a locker because you're a Christian? Probably not. Probably not. Um, you know, you might get stuffed into a locker because you're a nerd, but probably not because you're a Christian. But might you find yourself on the outside of certain social realities in the school and certain social things. Yeah, that can happen. Where suddenly you're just like, I don't know why I can't get in or why they wouldn't want to hang out with me. Well, you know, think about it. Or, or maybe you're in the business world and, um, and, and you're a believer. And I, like, for instance, I, I was uh, talking to a guy in our church and he, he was telling me how uh, he, he had a boss at one point in his life who was like overtly anti-Christian. He just was like, had a thing against evangelical Christians was his line. And so, you know, here's this guy in our church driving around on business calls. And, you know, the boss is driving and he's sitting in the passenger seat. And the guy's going off about blankety-blank Christians and, you know, evangelicals, nose-born-agains. It's like, what do you do? You're like sitting there in the car and, 
you know, you finally say something like, well, you know, it's kind of funny you say that because uh, I'm actually one of those people. And, and, you know, and maybe your boss is like, oh, sorry, ah, just spouting off. But, you know, it's out there now, right? And so what does that mean for your career? What does that mean for your livelihood? We'd like to think that everything was objective and fair, but we all know that the world doesn't always work that way. And there's all kinds of politics that go on in offices and schools and families. And, and uh, yeah, so that's a risk. You're like, maybe because I said that, I'm on the outs in some way. And so I think those are the kinds of things we might experience, at least right now as Christians. But whatever it is, whether it's intol- in- intolerant indifference or whether it's violence, Jesus is saying, don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't worry. You haven't done something wrong. You're just following me. And this is what happened to me. And this is what will happen to you as well if you're going to be faithful to me and be a faithful testimony. In fact, rather than freaking out, do what Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 22. Let me just read it to you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when men hate you. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Yay, my job got ruined. Leap for joy. Yay, I got dumped because they found out I was a Christian in the relationship. Yay. You know, leap for joy. Rejoice when you're excluded and and insulted because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. And I would add, that is how they treated our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we want to give you thanks this morning because you have done a miracle in our hearts You, Lord, have changed us from hating you to loving you. Lord, you've changed us from disbelieving to believing. Oh, thank you, Holy Spirit, for rescuing us. And I thank you that that same rescue is available to anyone who will turn to Christ to repent of sin and believe in him. Lord, I do pray for us as believers that we would be humble, that we would be loving, that we would be sweet, but we would also be bold and direct and clear with who you are, Lord, God, we need more guts. We, we, we pray for more boldness. Lord, we pray that you would shake this place and that your spirit would rest upon us and enable us to proclaim your name with greater boldness to the South Shore of Boston to, and to Boston and beyond. Lord, we do pray for uh, those around the world who are experiencing fiery trials for their faith. We pray for believers in Nigeria and believers in uh, Iraq and Iran and believers in North Korea and Saudi Arabia and in Morocco, and all the different countries around the world where the, uh, the hand of government and of society is heavy upon them, Lord. We pray that they would stand strong today, that they would continue to testify boldly and would take whatever comes and not, not be scandalized. And so, Lord, use us here in New England, too. We just beg you, Lord, for a work of your spirit here on the South Shore and in our church. We ask this all through the name of Christ, who was crucified and who rose. Amen.